0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. Uh, with me this week will be my doctoral advisor, Father David McConey. Um, our conversation will range from uh, my experience to being his doctoral student uh, to uh, many different issues, uh, some of which involve his most recent book published in um, last year, I believe, which I helped him edit to some degree. Um, It's called On Self-Harm and Narcissism, Uh, Atonement, and the Vulnerable Christ. And so we will discuss a a lot of different things, and and as Father McConey is a man of great learning, our uh, conversation will go from C.S. Lewis to St. Augustine to Anselm, the Milton. Um, it is a pretty pretty wide-ranging conversation, but it, as well, Agu- um, Father McConey has a pastor's heart, so part of this conversation will also include how he sees his theology as being beneficial to the people that he's able to serve as a, as a pastor and as a priest, and even a conversation that he had with his mother uh, about things that he has learned from, uh, from Augustine and from Scripture, um, and ultimately about um, how all of us are united to Christ. Um, so I hope that you enjoy this conversation Uh, rate us review us on itunes like us um, and uh, we appreciate all engagement if you are enjoying these interviews uh, please let us know Um, and if you have suggestions for other interviews or or any other kind of uh, content that we can uh, you know deliver other things that we can talk about please let me know um, we're lining up other interviews. I think I've got a few um, coming up, at least one with uh, Dr. Jeff Wicks, um, one of my professors as well from SLU, who has a book out on poetry um, from uh, the Syriac tradition. So that should be a fun conversation. So look out for that as well. Uh, thanks for listening and have a good week. Board. It's just a little soft. I've never done an in-person interview for this. We've
1: always Sorry, done them. The
0: well, I guess that's not true. When we uh, we started it while I was still in Idaho, so some we did, just me and my other friend. But um, All right, so this morning, uh, well, this afternoon, I guess, although it's a podcast, so who knows when people will be listening to it, uh, I have Father David McHoney, uh with me, and Father McConey is my doctoral advisor, or was, I guess I finished now. Um, so he just signed away my degree audit. So I think I think that's pretty much it, right? I'll still always be your doctoral father. <laughs> that's right. The Germans call it the Doctor Vater, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, I get you. You are stuck with me forever. Um, <laughs> it wasn't that
1: long, you're an easy student. <laughs> uh,
0: and Father McCony is prof- professor of patristics at St. Louis University. Um, and he's written a few different books um, on Augustine, and that's his kind of area special of uh, specialty and expertise. Uh, your first, your dissertation was the One Christ, right? And right. that was uh, published with Catholic University Press. And I recently uh, helped you kind of, a little bit, like I just did a quick glance at it of uh, on self harm and uh, on self harm, the atonement, and no, and the vulnerable ch- And the Christ. vulnerable
1: Christ. It's an unwieldy title, but yeah. No, you were one of the proofreaders, thank you. Yeah. And you helped me with my Peter Chrysologus book, another fifth-century oh, yeah. bishop. Uh, so, you've been very helpful.
0: Yeah. Well, so, and uh, the Chrysologus book is mostly going to be translation of... It's translation um,
1: and commentary, yeah. Yeah. Is, that'll, is that out yet? It'll be out this fall, I hear, or maybe early, 21. Okay. But,
0: so what, uh, just kind of going back to the beginning for you, I think you said you did your undergrad at Hope College, right? I was at Hope
1: College, uh, three and some years and went to work for a while and got dragged into daily mass when i was working in chicago and it made me start thinking about higher things and i ended up at marquette university where i did a degree in philosophy and then i stayed on and did a master's in theology and ended up joining the society of jesus back in 1992 i became a candidate in 91 entered the novitiate in 92 and so it's been a while now
0: yeah 91, 92. So, uh, so then, but you started your like more academic writing and work. I mean, the One Christ was only published in like, what, 2010, 2012, something. Yeah, I don't remember. Not my, that long. My ago.
1: intellectual awakening came yeah. through two Jesuits, Donald Keefe okay. at Marquette University and Father Leo Sweeney at Loyola University. I say that Donald Keefe taught me to love the church and Father Sweeney taught me that Christ and the church were one. Mm. And uh, that really obviously puts a little spark into your academic interest. It's not just about writing or amassing lines on your cv it's about growing in conformity with christ okay and some are called to that professionally as academics and all baptized are called to it in whatever state of life they're in yeah and that's always given me an impetus toward the fathers because they didn't they didn't divide their academic life their scholarly life their speculative life from the practical concerns of christian men and women
0: yeah well, and I think that also is an entree sort of into some of your interests with Augustine, right? So you're talking about the church and with Christ, and that's a, the totus Christus and the whole Christ right. is one of these phrases that comes up, uh, especially in, the, uh, in his commentaries on the Psalms, but, but even throughout his other um, homiletic writings, he does, uh, he does mention that. So um, so Augustine is a natural fit for those two concerns. Yeah, it's an amazing
1: insight, isn't it? That the, the Christ alone ascended in heaven is incomplete. that the entire Christ is all those he longs to bring to himself. And so every time we offer a prayer, every time we reach out to a non-believer, every time we try to mend the body of Christ, we're actually, if you will, um, amplifying Christ's presence and making him more and more himself. It works in one way. When we become more like Christ, we become more ourselves. And when Christ becomes more and more like us, he becomes more and more himself, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so the whole Christ, the totus Christus, Augustine's phrase for the church, is a really provocative, I think, invitation. To see that we have a role to play in the ongoing incarnation. Mm. That Christ isn't some historical figure, no, he's some heavenly being we'll meet one day, but he's actually present here and now. And that's where Augustine's whole Eucharistic theology comes in, not only his ecclesiology, but his, of course his insistence on charity, that when we love, we become Christ.
0: Yeah, that's very good. Well, and, and even that, um, the like the polls that you were talking about, we become more ourselves and more like Christ at the same time. That that might actually um, speak to some of the themes in the most recent book on self-harm and, and narcissism and the vulnerable Christ, because that has something to do with the individual. I mean, when I was reading through that book, uh, one phrase that struck me, which I should be, uh, I guess I probably should have known but but you say somewhere in there as in which is an Augustinian insight um that if we have anything of our own that's basically sin sin is the one right. thing that we keep away from Christ and at at one and the same time that's both sort of comforting that Christ can be um so near and dear to us that he you know that everything that we are that matters is from him but it's also can be a sort of Scary insight um, because we are Americans and we're individuals and we want to have things that are our own. Um, So could you you speak a little bit about the power of that? um, Well, yesterday in the
1: lectionary, we started the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and poor in spirit means to admit everything is gift. And I think one of the reasons Augustine was raised up by the father at the time of the Pelagian crisis is because he had a real understanding of the power of Pelagianism, thinking there's good in you that you place there. And so it took someone who was insisted upon grace. But of course, grace doesn't eradicate who we are. It makes mm-hmm. us fully who we are. And everything goes back in one way to Genesis 1, and 27, that we're made in God's image and likeness. So the more we become like God, the more we actually become like ourselves. And that's a real key anthropological... Beginning, mm-hmm. because our godliness isn't some afterthought; it's precisely for whom we're made. Yeah, and unfortunately, it takes many of us years to realize for whom we're made. Mm-hmm. You think it's you think it's eros, you think it's romance, you think it's finances, you think it's success or popularity, and toward the end of your life, you realize, as Augustine said so well at the beginning, our hearts are restless till so they rest in God. And of course, Saint Paul has Galatians two twenty. Right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. Where in me, not in us. Mm-hmm. Christ doesn't make us schizophrenic or dual identity, right? He makes us truly ourselves. In today's gospel, in the Catholic Mass, right, you are salt and light. And if you remember, C.S. Lewis has that great image. if somebody who didn't know what roast beef was, and you said, I'm going to put a little salt on that. No, I, don't. I want to taste the roast beef. Exactly, that's why the salt. Or someone from outer space, and you say, I want to show you what's in this room. I'll turn on the light. No, 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 I don't want to see light. I want to see what's in the room. Exactly. That Christ brings out, if you will, the truest flavor, the truest image of who we are. And so that's a really key, I think, unbroken trajectory to keep. That when you're trying to talk to someone about Christ, you try to show them that only he can make them fully who they are. Mm-hmm. Or if you read Dante, as you, as you go down the inferno, there are less and less, fewer and fewer faces, fewer and fewer names. Mm-hmm. People don't want to be known. They don't want to be seen. And that's what sin does, right? That's why self-harm is ultimately that tendency to go away. hmm Right? To say I love you means I'm glad you're here. To say I hate you means I wish you weren't here. Yeah. And we can say that to ourselves in very subtle ways.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like you. You. I know that you love C.S. Lewis and you brought up one C.S. Lewis image. That also makes me think of uh, the great divorce. You become less and less yourself and more disintegrated. Mm. Um, and he begins with the line that you also use, which is from Dunn, right? Where, I would rather reign in hell than serve in Milton, Milton.
1: Milton. Sorry. I was getting confused. Yeah, good point. And actually, I'll give you another Lewis, uh, Till We Have Faces. Yeah. The more we grow in love, the more our faces return Mm. to be truly who we are, yeah. Yeah, Lewis had mastered all of Christian literature in a very beautiful way, I think, so...
0: Yeah, I was teaching uh, the uh, so in my in my podcast streams, and my listeners will know that we just did a class that I called "Africans Against the World," huh. um, and I took it from the uh, Athanasius. Athanasius Contramundum, And the first thing we read was the C.S. Lewis introduction and about yeah. the and and Lewis sort of admits that he's not a master necessarily of Athanasius and the early Christian literature, but he talks about the importance, like you just said, of knowing the whole body of the tradition and how important it is. And maybe this is some of like your own academic work, but but also your pastoral work is the importance of seeing the insights of those who have gone before, and Lewis says, for every modern author, you should read several other ancient authors, um, because we there's not the the same sort of time tested um, truth to the uh, most recent. Well, I guess not truth, but they're not they haven't been tested through the generations in right. the same way um, in these recent books.
1: Well, it your listeners of that great image of Lewis at the beginning of that introduction, where he says, you can't intelligently join a conversation at mm-hmm. eleven that started at eight, right? Because you miss out on so much, and that's why I think so many modern Christians they're good and loving people, but Intellectually, they're shallow because they don't really have a foundation in the early church. Mm-hmm. And so, as you progress, you start to see that what the scriptures opened up, the fathers start to unfurl, and the medieval doctors start to let flourish, and the moderns who think well begin to see the fruits. And I mean, it's all well, it's the church, yeah. right? Um, Joan of Arc at her trial before she was condemned unjustly. They asked her, what do you know about Christ and his church? And he said, she said, the only thing I know is that they're one and we shouldn't complicate the matter. right?" And so there's this notion of Christ unfurling, unfolding himself in history. Yeah. And that's who we are today. We're the recipients of all that. And so if that's true, then those foundational figures like Athanasius and Augustine and Ignatius of Antioch, Clement of Alexandria, they deserve a special attention for us.
0: Yeah. And I mean, so I come from... In my, um more of the uh, reform side of evangelicalism, I guess. Um, That's basically, I was trained at, uh, well, I went to high school at Westminster Christian Academy, um, and my parents are Southern Baptist. Here in town. uh, Here in town. Yeah, here in St. Louis. And so those kind of shaping and forming influences you know, we didn't talk as much about the church fathers, but but I think part of your you know what you're uh, suggesting is that for all of us who are uh, like talking about C.S. Lewis as well, all of us, even though we may not come from a Catholic bath- background, there is still the great tradition. There are still, I mean, don't you know, forget so many Luther's an August-
1: Luther's an Augustinian monk. Calvin read more Augustine than anybody really in the 16th century. So yeah, it is part of your legacy too. Obviously, It has to be.
0: Yeah. A couple things that you were saying reminded me of Calvin, uh, which is, you know, he begins uh, his institutes asking the question whether or not he should begin with God or man. He isn't sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of the point about, uh, you know, you are most fully yourself in Christ. Um, is something that uh, that we could say Calvin probably learned from Augustine and from Paul um, you yeah. know and, and which is and it But it's that same insight that you know Those two are so closely
1: connected that Calvin isn't sure where to begin his, right. his sort of systematic account And Augustine would have an answer for him. Augustine says obviously the two great commandments are to love God and love neighbor yeah. And it doesn't matter where you start And that's a really essential insight that love is love. So we're, we've been talking about C.S. Lewis. I mean the four loves, right? Uh, affection, eros, friendship and and agape a big question is are those species or modes? Mm-hmm. If they're species they're different kinds of loves uh-huh. if they're modes they're all reflections of the one same love mm-hmm. and Augustine will, he'll, he'll throw his hat in the latter ring because love is ultimately divine that mm-hmm. God is love and he says therefore love is God and actually that inversion he attributes to John himself which is a bit of a slip or an intentional um, <laughs> yeah. and so the point is that we gauge our love of God by how we love one another that's what John says in his first letter whoever says they love God and hates his brother or sister is a liar and so Augustine will argue that even though love of God is ultimate it's really the love of neighbor that begins that drama mm. that most of us learn to love God by seeing a face dangling over the crib yeah. um, we came to love God uh, by loving neighbor first and even though love of neighbor may be chronologically or even emotionally prior it's love of God that's ontologically or formatively first. Yeah. And as a priest, I do a lot of, obviously, ministry in hospitals and places. And you you see mothers at the children's hospital holding their children just as lovely and tenderly as they do Holy Communion. You say, yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a convergence here that Augustine, I think, got better than any other Mm. thinker so far. I really do. Maybe Dante, right? Dante gets into heaven by watching Beatrice. It's his love for Mm. his girl that elevates him. And any good man knows that. By loving his wife properly, he becomes actually holier.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: and that opens whole new doors for what it means to be um, outside the church, no salvation, you know, the anonymous Christian. Those who love rightly love. Yeah. Yeah, because Christ is love.
0: Well, this, it strikes me that I hear uh, often sermons that will try to. Um Dissociate these loves Um, that like you could love God at the exclusion of loving your wife or your friend or something like that Where they want to pit these loves against each other and I always like want to cry out from the pew um, Like read some Augustine or read some John Um, (laughs) If we love one another uh, You know, we truly love God and this is you know, this is sort of that same insight But why is it that we want to fracture these that we want to make these like a competition
1: the Pharisees and all of us? um, by loving God we love a remote being whom we've probably made in our own image and likeness. And what we mean by that is by the law. Mm-hmm. And if I've kept the law, then I'm okay with the ultimate. And it's okay that I'm not okay with those around me, the horizontal beings who are as equal as I am. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a tendency in all of us to be Pharisees and to keep the rules. and That way we don't have to really put our eyes on anyone else. Mm-hmm. We can think about myself. Because Christians do that a lot. We're talking about my salvation, my forgiveness my and really we're to be other centered at all times it's not about your salvation it's about christ's presence in you it's mm-hmm. That and so um, i think there is a tendency to do that because it's convenient and safe especially in trying times in turbulence we all want security mm-hmm. and the rules and the laws give us security and you don't need to be a modern christian to do that there's a strand in our christian Um, History of what Eleanor Stump here at St. Louis University calls the stern-minded Christian, the person who will destroy himself, herself, those around them in order to show God how much he matters to them. Mm -hmm. In fact, a couple days before my mom died, um, I walked into her room, and she was in tears. And I said, Mom, what's the matter? And she said, I'm disappointing our Lord. I said, well, what's the matter? And she said, I don't want to leave you kids, and that must really hurt him. Mm -hmm. I thought, Mom, you're thinking of this wrongly. and so I went and got the scriptures, and we read the story of Lazarus. Mm-hmm. I said, look, even he cries at the loss of his friend, Mom. Death is not a good in and of itself. And you're not going to impress God by not letting out how much God's people mean to you. Yeah. And that's the thing about friendship. That's the thing about the community of the saints. We can only love God by loving those whom he loves. And so for a second there, my mom made a mistake. She, she became stern-minded. Lord, look how much I love you. I don't care about this earth. Yeah. But 1 Corinthians 15, 28 is... God will be all in all. Mm-hmm. The, the moment God chose to create, he chose not to be everything. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, he loves to share his presence with all things. Mm-hmm. And that's why a prayerful soul that makes his or her way through this world does it with a certain joy and freedom. They don't worry about the law because they know the Father has everything in his hands, right? What does Augustine say? Love God and do what you will. That's right. Right? So, And it seems like even there we could bring up your um, sort of... Uh,
0: interest in Augustine and deification um, and that like God wanting to share himself with us. Right? right. So creation in, in creation, there's a sort of separation. There's a sort of, like, there is something that's necessarily different between God and his creation, but all of creation is a sort of like through sin has been uh, marred that image, that likeness to God. Uh, but in deification, as you understand it in Augustine, which is not, not an insight that many have uh, seen, mm-hmm. um, I guess some, uh, but, uh, but you sort of, you, did sort of a groundbreaking study on that, right? That was the the one. Christ was to really show how integral this was, even to Augustine. But but even on a pastoral level, it sounds like it has it can have this relationship, even to how ha- or this sort of connection uh, to our relationships here on earth, and to how that we understand uh, everything being um, in in this love uh, for God.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, again, C.S. Lewis, one of his friends, Charles Williams, one of the Englands he has a letter to his. Uh, Wife, in which he says, uh, "Love you?" question mark He says, "I am you." And if you think about it, that's precisely what Matthew twenty-five is about. That's what Acts nine four, when Saul hears from the clouds, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That Christ is us. We are Christ because love transforms the lover into his beloved. Mm-mm. I mean, you must know that after years of marriage, you start to become more and more like each other, mm-hmm. right? And one day your children say, "Oh, you and mom, you're just alike," and that's a compliment because mm-hmm. you should be alike, right? You see that with dog owners. After a while, they start to look like their pooch. You know, same haircut, same sweater vest. Um, but yeah, so love is one of these, well, what is pseudo The vis unitiva, the unifying force. Mm-hmm. And that God loved us so much, he became like us. But that's only the first, first half of the play. Yeah. The second half is that we are to love God in such a way that we become like him. And so 2 Peter 1.4. We become partakers of the divine nature, that we never possess godliness. We never possess charity or joy, but we do partake of them. We we participate in them. And that that way we can say two things that are both true. I am a sinner and I am holy, mm-hmm. right? Because that holiness is not mine. It's not something I possess and I can be assured of. It's something I partake of and be convinced of. But it's ultimately God's continuous, incessant gift to me. Even in heaven, that'll be gift. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, and it it also strikes me that uh, in the way that you just phrased that, blank oh the so sort of you used a lot of you talked about a dog owner becoming like his dog a, a, a wife and a husband and you talk all about these very earthly relationships um i know that uh, well for uh, for one there's just a book out on uh, the meaning of protestant theology by philip Carey, but but others have have asserted um even calvin actually one of his criticisms of augustine he says in uh, the gospel of J- uh, his commentary on the gospel of john he says that augustine is a excessively concerned with Platonism. Um, and so there's this charge that Augustine is so in the clouds and is so spiritually minded that he's totally forgotten the sort of the bodily or has so sort of ignored um, uh, our, our in, like the fact that we're flesh. Um, and so how would you respond to those that would sort of say that, yeah, I mean, Augustine has a lot to say that's good, but but like Calvin said, he's just too concerned with Plato, and Plato's too concerned with ideas and the other realm and the spiritual life. But,
1: I would say to anyone like that, say read his sermons. Read how he speaks to the farmers and the housewives and the, and the people before him day after day after day. You wrote on the sermons. You see that he is not an otherworldly figure. He understands that this world makes sense only in the other world. And so often in the homilies where he'll remind the the Christians who are about to say the Mass, lift up your heart, sursum corda, that you and I are on earth, but our hearts have to think heavenly. Mm -hmm. We have to be with a different kind of mind. But that doesn't take our body away. In fact, he calls his flesh his amica eterna, his eternal friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I just think it's ungrounded. Now, you could certainly take parts, like the De Trinitate. Mm -hmm. The body plays a very minor part in how he understands the imaging of the triune God and the soul. But that doesn't, eradicate or dismiss the body just isn't his concern. Yeah in fact in the Diversis Questionibus, the 83 mm-hmm. Questions, he talks about that you and I play how does he put it? The image of God participates in our bodies because we are the animals who stand heavenly word. Mm-hmm. We stand erect, we stand upright, yeah. unlike other animals whose faces are to the ground. Now I imagine other animals do too, like I guess penguins or but they, our bodies even represent our heavenly status. So I would not Hold at all that Augustine dismisses the body. I think part of his, maybe part of that critique would be that he understands the power of Eros. He understands the power of carnal lust because mm-hmm. he was entrapped for a while. But most of my students are disappointed when they read the Confessions. It's not as steamy as they thought it was <laughs> going to be. He, was, I mean, he's no more entrapped by carnal lust than any purview of MTV today. Right. I mean, yeah, so... No, I just think it's an unfounded claim. It's a convenient claim, but I don't think it's real. Yeah. Well, what do you think? You wrote on the homilies.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, uh, well, this podcast is supposed to be about you, so they hear enough of you. Here's a chance to sell your book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not a book yet. We're working on it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, well, one of the things that I wrote on in the the, the article that I did before I did the dissertation was on um, the sort of, um, well, the rhetorical use of like a humiliating um, rhetoric. And and so it could be seen from one angle as humiliating that Augustine speaks about Christ's incarnation in such bodily terms. But that's also precisely the glory of it insofar as... um, uh, as Christ is uniting himself uh, in that mm-hmm. way uh, and pa- partaking in the human flesh. So it's not a rejection of because he partakes in it um, and he becomes the one mediator, right? So one of those oft quoted phrases from from Augustine is that Christ is our mediator from 1 Timothy but he He loves this I think because he sh- He knows and he sees that Christ doesn't reject it. That's the whole point of taking on the, the form of the servant right. um, and at some point he, I think in that article I, I draw on he uses a Latin word for the beast. It's a Brute, dumb, obtumentus—it's this very like this word for for a stupid animal—and um, and he says that that Christ is that pack horse of the flesh—is um, what Augustine calls it. And
1: in fact, his uh, commentary on the um, Good Samaritan—that the pack mule upon which the Good Samaritan puts the poor man is the flesh of Christ. Yeah. He comes down in order to put us on literally on his ass and lift us into heaven. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing, earthy. No 4th century, 5th century thinker can be really without the flesh, unless he's a monk somewhere out in the desert. But these people, they smelled differently, they acted differently, they sounded differently. I mean, the body was very much a concern each day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's definitely helpful. So yeah, I mean it. It, it was just a. Uh, I, I mean, I don't necessarily share the concern, but uh, but it was. Well, Doctor Carey
1: that, is a, he's a force, and he he writes well. So. Yeah,
0: well, and he's a little bit concerned. I uh, we'll see if I can get him on the podcast. Do please. Um, I I uh, I get to actually interview with him slightly for a job for or uh, shortly for a job, but. Uh, but he, he has this, like, idea that—well, uh, and one of the things that you mentioned in, in De Trinitate as well is the difficulty of understanding exactly in what flesh we shall see Christ. Um, so one thing that, um, that I don't think I really thought too much of until I started reading Augustine and Ernest and spent time here at SLU was the batific vision. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that, that um, uh, Carrie has is, like, who will we see Christ— um, what is it exactly that we will see? What is the role of the flesh in this? And he thinks that Augustine is too concerned with visual metaphors that um, preclude the body. Um, and uh, he has a lot about hearing and how the, the importance of hearing the gospel. Um, and so uh, he makes... Um, when he reads Augustine, he sees this inward turn that seems to ignore the bodily function. And then it and there's ultimately becomes this question of, is, do we see Christ in the body? Where is the body in this uh, eschatological and final vision? And that's an
1: important question, right? Because if we do gaze upon the Godhead, how do we see the Father and the Spirit who never became visible? Um, Augustine has a great line in one of his Easter homilies where he talks about the wounds of Christ in John 20, not healing. And he says that will be the same for all of us, that our body's tormentum will become our ornamentum. Mm. The, the torments will become our ornaments. And so he never dismisses the body, even in the scars and the wounds. Uh, now, I think Carrie's point is right. What does it mean to see God in the beatific vision? Will we see only the sun? Yeah. Uh, who knows? First John 3, 2, that we will become like God, for we shall see him as he is. Mm-hmm. Augustine only uses that line in all of his corpus, I think six times, but they always appear in widows, letters to widows. Mm-hmm. They obviously have reached out to him. What is my husband doing right now? What is he seeing? Mm-hmm. And Augustine admits, I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know what's going on. But we do have the promise of seeing God and therefore becoming like him. Yeah. So the dynamics are there, the content. Obviously, he knows now, but he didn't then. Well that's
0: also one of the things that has drawn me to reading Augustine is you know we have a whole life of his writings and of course the Retractations at the end so we actually even get to see Augustine at various points admit where he got things wrong or ask questions about what maybe he doesn't know, like he's never quite sure exactly how original sin is transferred through the body and the soul. There's at least something of a question, um, you know, because he doesn't want to fall prey to certain um, what he knows to be heresies. Um, but, But we do have, like, and so I think even in this question about the vision of God in the end, Augustine is a little, like, Look, I'm not 100% sure exactly how of all this plays out, but to me that, you know, that draws me more into wanting to read Augustine because it's someone who's willing to say at, the mo- at these precise moments where he doesn't know. Yeah. Um,
1: and as dogmatic and as sure as he can be, he also exhibits often intellectual charity saying, yeah, I, I don't know. I think Book Twelve of the Confessions is a great example of that. What does it mean to create heaven and earth? And he gives these various options. He says, I don't know what exactly these scriptures mean by this. Here's what it can't mean. Yeah. But here are four or five different ways of understanding those terms. So, yeah, he's uh, he's what we call an occasional theologian, right? He's rarely systematizing anything, but he's responding to people's questions. And I see in that a, a real appreciation for the other.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, and even uh, the confessions, and then I was thinking about Anselm, but this idea that, like, writing... Uh, you know, the confessions are a prayer. Anselm's prologion, uh, proslogion and monologion are prayers. Um, and so writing theologically for Augustine at times is just prayer. Um, and yeah. so they like, so it's not a systematic treatise in the sense that we might mean it now, but for him it's, um, yeah, it's a dialogue with God. A it's a months. prayer,
1: but it's also a way of his learning. Remember in the beginning of the day Trinitate, he says, what I don't know, I usually learn by writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's getting it out, which is a great example, I think for all of us who tend to stay inside our heads. But you, as you know, you don't know something until you teach it. Well, so that, I was going to say that I like that the, the Seneca
0: says, uh, by teaching we learn. Um, and I use that as my mantra because I've often called into teaching things that I don't feel quite ready to teach. And I, start, I use that as an excuse and I say, okay, well, here's an opportunity to learn. Right. I may not have mastered X or Y subject, um, but but I get to learn more about it. And so there's definitely, I, I, I am also uh, learning uh, that by writing, we learn a lot. So the program here at SLU has given me occasion to really beef up my writing, which uh, I guess a little self-disclosure, that was one of the things that <laughs> that was commented to me very early on, not by you, uh, but by other professors, like, hey, you're gonna need to work on writing if you're gonna make this a life. Um, and so that's, that's been one of the harder challenges, uh, for, for me, um, is, is trying to get, get, uh, get some clarity with, with writing, but so I've learned through that as well. Well, we
1: are disciples of the word and it's not just writing. You have your podcast, you preaching, but as an academic writing is the medium with which we can reach a lot of people. Yeah. So it is important, but the word can be expressed both orally, verbally, uh, but also personally. And I think mm-hmm. you do that exhibit Thank the you. love of Christ.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I'll wrap up here uh, pretty quick. I don't want to take up too much of uh, Father's time, but it strikes me as we talk about the words, you know, someone. Uh, I think I think he actually said in the O'Donnell biography, which I don't always like, but he points out that, uh, but he points out that uh, Augustine always has friends around, and yeah. he never seems to have a quiet moment. Um, and it, like, it reminds me that it, um, there's a um, in Scott Mamaday is a is an author, and he wrote a book. Um, oh shoot. Uh, I'm trying to think of what... The Housemaid... No. I can't remember the name of the title. Uh, But anyway, uh, I'll I'll think about it, and I'll put a link up to it. But he writes in the beginning that um, Westerners and white people are obsessed with talking, and maybe it's because their god is the word. (laughs) Um, And so I guess maybe, in a a weird way, it it has always reminded me of the place of silence. Um, And and so that's what Day is trying to... uh, sort of teach about or talk about is the importance of silence. So it's, it's an interesting thing to think about Augustine who left us five million words, five, um, and, a half. five and a half million words and, um, you know, all these different uh, things. But uh, the, um, yeah, he just talks about how, how much we talk and Augustine's always talking and there are always these friends and, um, but in fact, there is a place for silence and an importance for silence and just listening to the word maybe. Yeah,
1: yeah, that would be a great study, Augustine, on silence. But he had the uh, tradition of writing during the wee hours of the night. Mm -hmm. There was a silence. And as a popular bishop, he spent most of the days with people adjudicating cases and listening to pastoral concerns and and, and, and ministering to families. And so he was a very busy person. But I think in one way he really was an introvert. I think Mm -hmm. he recharged by returning to his cell, returning to his desk. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I get the sense that his preaching and his his public life was somewhat of a drain, but he did it because he knew the Lord needed him there.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, very good. Um, I think that's probably, there's, well, there's a you. lot to digest thank in that. Thank you for that having line. me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's, it's fun. Uh, we, I don't know that we've had too many um, just sort of free-flowing conversations, you, just you and I. You know, we're always working on a project or something that, you know, trying well, to get me through the program Yeah, since you've got a monologue on your end. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but thank you.
1: All right, very good.
0: Thank you for listening to History of Christian Theology. Uh, my name is Chad Kim, and I hope you enjoyed this interview with Father David McCony.